Interesting. Right, we'll do a little reading first. Uh, so this is Mark 2, um, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are, you, uh, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and, and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Excellent. Well, um, hello everyone. Uh, I'm Robbie. For those who've uh, not seen me before, it's usually because I'm in the 11 o'clock service. This is my first 4, 4, 8, 4 p.m. I was about to say 4 a.m. 4 p.m. service. Um, so uh, it's nice to be here. Really nice to be here. And uh, it's, a, it's great to speak to you. Um, our species has a problematic relationship with work and rest. Is it me, or does anyone find it slightly odd that of all the commandments in the Ten Commandments, there is a commandment to rest? Is that a strange thing? Does anyone want to think about that? You know, thou shalt rest. Thou shalt not do anything at all. Isn't that, isn't that a little bit strange? It's almost like an anti-commandment, like being commanded to laugh or commanded to enjoy or to eat too much, you know. All those things are very easy to do. Why do we need to be commanded to do them? And yet, the fact that there even is a commandment to rest, to have a day of rest, highlights our distorted relationship with work and rest. We are a species that needs to be told to rest. Uh, next slide, if we could have next one up. Probably next two up, in fact. Um, there we go. And then the one after that. Brilliant. Um, Elon Musk, it will, it will come up in a, in, a, in a second. Elon Musk is the world's richest man. Uh, and he, apparently he works 100-hour weeks, which is quite a lot, apparently. So seven days a week he works, and he works very hard. And, I mean, then again, he's managed to do three impossible things. Um, he, have we got the next slide coming up at all? Um, uh, he, he built the first commercially successful electric car, um, which is pretty amazing. Then he fired it into space. <laughs> there it is, fired it into space on a trajectory to Mars, and then the rocket re-entered the atmosphere in one piece and landed itself. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's absolutely incredible, and that happened in our lifetimes. Uh, I mean, I like my work, but I'm not Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't think anyone is. Um, if anything, I'm more like, next slide, if, if good, I'm more like Baloo. Um, now we all probably know Baloo. He's a big bear, like me. He likes to eat a lot like me, and he likes to relax, and he likes the occasional jaunty musical number, just like me. Now, I've, I've basically got two gears, fifth and neutral. <laughs> so, you know, uh, you know when don't get me wrong, when there's, when, there's, when there's deadline on, when there's a lot of work going on, you know, I, yeah, I, I'm very industrious. But as soon as the pressure comes off, even a little bit, well, basically... I become blue. Um, <laughs> uh, when I go on holiday, uh, I really power down, and, and my wife calls it uh, going into standby mode. Um, so, so that's me. Um, I, I wonder who you identify more with. Do you identify more with Elon Musk or with Blue? Do you feel that the biblical command to have a day of rest 
Do you find that disrupts you, that it gets in the way of your, of your rhythm? Or, or is it something that comes so naturally to you that you can barely believe that there is a commandment to rest? Well, Sabbath rest is countercultural. Uh, in our culture, hard work and maximizing productivity is synonymous with virtue in, in our culture. And, and it's something you can't possibly have too much of. Um, it's even sus- subtly suggested in our, in our political language. Um, so, w- uh, you know, we, we, we don't call working class working class anymore. Uh, the, the, the new term is hard-working families. Have you noticed that in our political language? Hard-working families. In other words, hard-working little units of economic output. That's how, that's how we've been uh, boiled down. And um, our passage today is all about Sabbath rest. Where we go wrong, both individually and, as you've just seen, as a, as a culture, and how to put it right. So, in our passage today, Jesus is walking through a field uh, on the Sabbath with his disciples. And as was permitted in the book of Deuteronomy, he picks grain from the field and rubs it in his, in his hands. That was allowed in Deuteronomy. You're allowed to pick a small amount of grain to save off hunger. Uh, almost like a little mini threshing machine, getting out the good stuff. But they weren't alone. They were being followed by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were watching intently what Jesus was doing to see if he was violating any religious law. The Pharisees were a Jewish sect, as many of you know, and they were fanatical about keeping the Sabbath. And they, they turned something that was very simple, which was the Sabbath day is holy and not for working. They turned something very simple into something wildly complicated. They, 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 they put in place 39 buffer commandments around that commandment so they could be sure they could never break that commandment. They had these 39 buffer commandments called the Malachia around it. Thus, the Sabbath was turned from a blessing uh, for people into miserable, burdensome religiosity. And as soon as they see Jesus picking grain, like a Monty Python sketch with the Spanish Inquisition, they pop up from behind a hedge and go, aha, no one expects the Pharisees. <laughs> and uh, and you know, they point out that Jesus is violating the Sabbath, surely. And like a boxer, Jesus hits back, and he does a sort of two jabs and then an uppercut. So the first jab, Jesus uses an obscure proof text from Samuel 21, David eating, eating the temple bread, to prove that even if, even if picking grain was labor and therefore violated the Sabbath, there is biblical precedent for breaking Jewish ceremonial law if it was necessary such as to stave off hunger. Verse 27, second jab, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he takes them all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis, to when the Sabbath was first designated by God, to say that it was made for the benefit of man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, it's not supposed to be a miserable and practical set of rules. It's supposed to be a blessing. Now, Jesus could have walked away at that point, having won the argument have walked away, but instead he follows up with an almighty uppercut. Verse 28, so the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. And this was a double-barreled claim to be God, double-barreled. Firstly, Jesus claimed to be the Son of Man, which, as many of you may know, comes from Daniel 7, uh, where it describes a messianic divine figure to come in the future who establishes an eternal kingdom and who receives worship. It's a very explicit claim to be God. It doesn't come across easily in English, but if you know the background, it's, wow, it's a big, weighty claim. Secondly, 
He also claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who established the Sabbath in the beginning, the ruler and potentate of time, designating a portion of time as a temple, not built out of stone, but out of time. He makes a temple out of time. To the Pharisees, this was blasphemy, what Jesus just said. So much so that just six verses later, just six verses later, we are told that they began to plot how they could kill Jesus. Only three chapters into Mark, and already people are wanting to kill Jesus. And we're only in Mark 3. And it, it is, I mean, it, it surprised me, but it was this incident, this Sabbath controversy that began. It was the first step on the road to the crucifixion for Jesus. So we've walked through the Sabbath. Uh, we'll now have a look at the distortion of the Sabbath. And we have the slides at all? Are they, uh, are they gone walkies? <laughs> um, uh, so we've walked through the Sabbath. Um, next, we'll have a look at the distortion of the Sabbath. How has our relationship with work and rest gone awry? Well, I think there's three distortions um, uh, that, that we fall into with the Sabbath. Legalism, under-Sabbath, and Sabbath overspill. Legalism, under-Sabbath, and Sabbath overspill. First distortion, legalism. This is a distortion most obviously evident in this passage. Um, here the Pharisees are legalistic. They, they, they took what God had commanded for, the, for our benefits and distorted it by shrouding it in innumerable uh, buffer commandments, additional rules, so that it would no longer be beneficial but oppressive and impractical. I know some people from a very, perhaps a very strict or, or conservative religious background may struggle with this. For them, Sunday is a day of guilt. A day of guilt because they worry that they're constantly transgressing some Sabbath ideal. Sunday isn't a day of celebration, reflection, rest, and worship, a day to replenish. Instead, it's a day of exhaustion, spiritually and mentally. To anyone struggling with this, Jesus says directly here, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Sabbath shouldn't be legalistic. It should be liberating. It should replenish you, not exhaust you. Second, distortion, uh, the second distortion is under Sabbath. Under Sabbath, Notice that Jesus doesn't say here, I've come to do away with the Sabbath. He doesn't say that. Instead, he affirms the Sabbath. In fact, he centers himself on the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I'm all about Sabbath. I'm all about the Sabbath, which is quite a thing to say. Therefore, it's a distortion of God's plan for us if we deny ourselves the gift of the Sabbath. And this is perhaps harder than ever in post-COVID times, where homeworking has blurred the lines, widespread homeworking has blurred the lines between workplace and home. We used to, I don't know about you, but I used to symbolically click shut down on my PC at the end of Friday and go, yay, <laughs> I'm going home now. There's a distinct separation between work and home. But now we find work follows us home, often. And it's harder than ever to escape uh, work and to, to delineate that work time and rest time. Um, I once met up with a guy who used to go to Cypher here a few years ago, and I sort of sheepishly asked him, you know, how things were going, how things were going spiritually, and asked if he if he was, you know, still went to church. And he said, "Yeah, I kind of want to, but 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 I can't because of shift work." And uh, I kind of needled a little bit below the surface and kind of tried to find out, you know, what was going on. And it turned out that he wanted to take home as much overtime pay as possible um, for financial incentives. And so he just filled as much of his time as possible with shift work. 
to maximize take-home earnings. So because of how he chose to arrange his work-life balance, that was doing innumerable, just, just inestimable damage to his spiritual life and the spiritual life of his family. The third distortion of the Sabbath is Sabbath overspill. Just as Sabbath is for rest, not for work, so too work time is for work, not for rest. Exodus 20 says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath. So the fourth commandment, which we've read here, assumes that the Sabbath is preloaded with a sense of completion and satisfaction from our work in the previous six days. During some seasons, I have struggled with this. When my Sabbath time overspills into work time, I've struggled with this. Elements of laziness, procrastination, distraction uh, have crept in, and it's meant that I haven't done all my work in, in the six days, and I don't have that sense of completion and satisfaction by the time I do get to the Sabbath. And in that sense... I haven't honored the Sabbath. So those are a few, a few uh, examples uh, of distortions of the Sabbath. Legalism, under Sabbath, and Sabbath overspill. Now let's turn our attention to the final part, which is the renaissance of the Sabbath. We could bring up, there we go, brilliant. Um, the renaissance of the Sabbath. Now, as many of you know what the renaissance is, the renaissance was a time in Europe when people recovered knowledge of uh, technical and creative knowledge that had been lost since ancient times, since Roman times. And people would, people would walk beneath the Pantheon in Rome, the dome of the Pantheon, or they'd, or they'd uh, sail beneath the arches of the Pont de Gai in France, and they would just look up and go, how, what, how, how did they do that? <laughs> you know? And they had no, the, the knowledge had been lost. The knowledge had been lost. And so, so too, we need to recover. We need to have a renaissance. We need to recover for the forgotten discipline of the Sabbath. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? And at this point, you might expect me to rattle off a list of, of helpful tips or exhortations so that we can you know, get better at this, get better at this. But change doesn't start without obedience. Real, long-term change starts much deeper down, deeper down in our hearts. Ultimately, we do things because we want to. I mean, it's fairly obvious, but it's true, isn't it? We do things because we want to. So we have to start much, much further down. Most people do things because they want to. We must therefore first cultivate inner change in our hearts, in our mindsets, our motives, attitudes, and desires before we then move into addressing outer, outer disciplines, external disciplines. So starting at the level of our hearts, why cultivate the discipline of holding the Sabbath? Why? Two reasons in order of increasing importance. Firstly, it's good for us. It's good for us. God has created us with a natural need for disconnecting from work and having time to reflect, process, rest, and recuperate. Exodus 20 tells us that even farm animals got to have a day off on the Sabbath. Even fields needed time to rest and lie fallow so that the soil could recover. God's created order runs on a, worst, uh, on a, on a work rest cycle. And if we get out of sync with that cycle, uh, ordained cycle, we would suffer as much as if we constantly were breathing stale air or had a, a malnourished diet. Celebrating the Sabbath is good for you. It improves physical health and mental health. It strengthens family bonding. It helps build better societies. And, may, and many argue that in the long term, it improves uh, productivity and creativity. And what is more, it's fun. 
and it doesn't cost anything. So why would you not do it? Why would you not? Why would you not want to get good at this if it's fun and it costs nothing? But the command to honor the Sabbath is not a random activity that God gives to us because we're bored uh, and need something to do. Someone says, touch your face. Someone says, have a Sabbath. No, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> Nor is it given to us primarily for its practical utility, although it does indeed have a lot of practical utility. Rather, the primary motive of the Sabbath is that it paints a picture of the character and purposes of God, character and purposes of Jesus. Next slide. Please, there we go, brilliant. Um, Jesus personally identifies himself with Sabbath rest. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Sabbath rest personified. Think of a time when you've had a really good Sunday, a really good Sunday, a really good day off. Belly laughter around the dining room table with friends and family. Clinking of pub glasses in a, in a pub garden. A walk in nature, communion and worship at church and fellowship. A lion that gives you a really deep rest, a really deep physical rest. The abandonment, the abandonment of all burden just for one day. Take that feeling, take what it does to your soul and bottle it. Bottle it up. Because that is a taste, just a whiff, a weekly reminder of what it is like to be in the presence of Jesus. And Jesus, our Sabbath rest personified, will be our possession forever. I don't know about you, but that excites me. That excites me. Take that feeling, expand it to eternity, expand it to infinity. It tells you something about who Jesus is. It gives you a fe an actual inner feeling of what it's like to be like, what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus. That is why Sabbath is holy. Not only that, but Sabbath is holy because it points us to the gospel. It points us to the story of salvation, where we came from, where we're going, and how we get there. Next slide, please. Brilliant. In Genesis 2, we're told, oh, sorry, back one. Uh, in Genesis 2, we're told, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Now, God didn't need to take a rest because he was tired. He's omnipotent. Of course, he wasn't tired. Instead, he took time to enjoy his handiwork, the handiwork of his primordial splendor. So, next slide, please. You know, he, he, he rested and, and enjoyed all of that. He enjoyed it all. Geezer spraying high into the air, the Milky Way at night, a kaleidoscopic sunset, blue whales, graceful blue whales swimming deep, in, deep through the ocean, Mount Fuji in Japan, a bird of paradise, and more and more and more. And more than all of that, he created us. He created the human race in all of its glory. And God surveyed it all. He took it all in on the seventh day. That's where it all began. Rest and joy. Rest and joy. This is where we came from. You ever thought about that? We came from rest and joy. Rest and joy were the nursery of our species. But the first Adam rebelled, and we all followed his example, as the rest of the Bible goes on to expand on. So God sent the second Adam, Jesus, to die on the cross, dying for our sins. And what did he say as he died? Next slide, please. What did he say as he died? It is finished. John 19.30. Six days of labor from Palm Sunday through to Good Friday. Six days of labor. And at the end, he says, he echoes Genesis 2. It is finished. And what is more, he experienced total restlessness upon the cross. Just to breathe, he had to pull himself up on the nails going through the mesial nerves, pressing against the mesial nerves in his wrists. Just to breathe, every breath, to get oxygen into his lungs. 
and then to breathe out, he had to allow his weight to drop onto the nail going through his ankle bone. Every breath for hours on end was astonishing agony, astonishing restlessness that we couldn't even believe. So, and why did he do that? So that we could receive ultimate, complete Sabbath rest in him. And Good Friday led to Easter Sunday, the new Sabbath, when everything was different. As the Lord of the Sabbath exited the tomb on that Sabbath, I can only imagine that Jesus experienced Sabbath satisfaction as he surveyed his work, the completed work of salvation. And it was very, very good. As I was writing the sermon, as it, as it dawned on me for the first time, I'd never seen this before, this parallel between the cross and um, Genesis 2, that, that first Sabbath. And, and it never dawned on me. I, I wondered, does, do the words, it is finished, do they occur anywhere else in the Bible, perhaps? Hmm. And I flick through to the end. And next slide, please. In Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It is finished. Isn't God's word beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? Completed creation ended with it is finished. Completed salvation ended with it is finished. And the completed renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth is heralded with it is finished. In Christ, we shall return that rest and joy from where it all began. Now some theologians say that on that day we will enter the eighth day, the Sabbath beyond the Sabbath, when all striving and restlessness will come to an end. Next slide. Um, thank you. Uh, the, eight-sided, uh, the eight-sided dome of Florence. Has anyone ever been there to that cathedral? Absolutely amazing. It's eight-sided. And um, the number eight often occurs in Catholic architecture because they're, it's a message the architecture is speaking to us, like the Sabbath does, telling us where we're going, where all things are going. So do you see uh, how knowing this can change our relationship with work and rest? Can you see how knowing this can counter our modern distortions of legalism, under-Sabbathing, and Sabbath overspill? First, legalism. Jesus has paid the price for our sin already. Our works, whether it's Sabbath-keeping or, or fasting or giving or whatever it is, contribute nothing to our salvation, to our status before God. And therefore, religiously, legalistically, keeping Sabbath rules and the fantasy that they somehow bring us into favor with God, like the Pharisees did, that excludes us from the true Sabbath rest of knowing we're already secure and safe in his hands through Jesus' finished work on the cross. It is finished. Secondly, Sabbath overspill. Dishonoring our employers through laziness or procrastination. How can we look at the completed work of what Jesus has done through creation and what he labored for us on the cross and not be inspired by his example? Honoring our employers by keeping work time for work and Sabbath time for rest. How can we not be, how can that integrity not rub off on us? Thirdly, under Sabbathing. Why do we not rest? Why do we not rest? Why do we resist it? Often it's because we find our identity, our identity primarily or, or, or excessively in work. For some, work even justifies their existence. And so we overwork. We overwork. I knew a man, um, my father-in-law in fact, uh, who was made redundant in middle age. 
He'd worked so hard all his life, and when they let him go, it was like a part of him had died. It was like they tore his heart out. And so much of his identity was in his work that he never really recovered. He sat in his living room day after day, unable to move on from the disappointment. It was like a part of him had died, and he sank into a spiral of depression and addiction, which was devastating to, to him and, and his family. If we under Sabbath, maybe it's because units of economic output is our primary identity, or is overwhelmingly part of our identity. Jesus reveals our value is infinitely more than this, when he did all the work to give us everlasting rest in him. Work is important. It is. It's very important. But when Jesus sees you, he sees that there is so much more to you than units of economic output. There's so much more to you than that. Jesus looks at you and says, it is finished. He looks at you and says, son and daughter of God. I can think of no higher identity than that. And knowing that is liberating. We may also under-Sabbath if we think we have to squeeze every last drop of productivity out of our lives. Every day, every moment must be used for maximal economic output, some may think. My old flatmate had a productivity app on his phone. It was quite strange. Um, Everything he did, it measured. So exercise, um, how much he looked at social media, his work time, everything he did, he was constantly on it, measuring his performance. And I think deep down, he had a big fear, which was, I've got one life. I've got one life. I've got to squeeze every last drop out of myself to justify my existence. Productivity, productivity. That was, that's, was, that's what was his raison d'etre. Now, don't get me wrong. Productivity has its place. But Sabbath is a radical declaration that work, profit, productivity is not my chief end. It's a, it's a radical statement. Jesus is my highest end. It is a statement that elevates us above that. I'm willing to step back from absolute maximum short-term productivity as an act of worship. That is, that is the statement that Sabbath gives us. It's an act of faithfulness to him. It's somewhat similar in that sense to fasting and giving. When you fast, you're saying, food and gluttony are not my God. Jesus is. When you give, you're saying, money and financial security is not my God. Jesus is. So we've addressed Sabbath at a heart level. I hope it becomes easier and desirable now to now look at the outer disciplines of keeping the Sabbath. We've done the why. Let's now move on to the how. So there we go. Excellent. Uh, firstly, plan. Rest can happen spontaneously, but deep rest, deep rest, usually requires planning. You need to plan to take time off. Normally a Sunday, but not for everyone. Will can't take, a time. <laughs> can't take Sundays off. It's as busy as day of the week, isn't it? But um, you need to plan to take time off. I've uh, somehow lost, <laughs> lost a page here. Um, it's a plan to take Sunday off. Uh, you also need uh, contemplation. You need contemplation. I have now seen my script. It's still on my chair, so I'm going to naturally walk over and pick it up. <laughs> there we go. Right. <laughs> Rather than just ad-libbing it. So there we go. Um, uh, so uh, we need to plan to take quality time off, whether it's uh, leaving time to go to church, preparing Sunday lunch, planning a mended walk, that sort of thing. Secondly, be accountable. It may be a spouse or friends, but we need to hold ourselves accountable if we struggle to detach from work. 
We need to be honest and give space to others to be honest with us. Sabbath is corporate, not individualistic. I once had a, a, um, a colleague at work, Adam, who was trying to impress his, his boss uh, by, by working on his holiday, by you know, responding to emails whilst he was on, on holiday. I mean, yeah, it was, it was locked down, and you, know, you can kind of see there wasn't much else to do. But he was trying to impress his boss, and you know, I just sort of came alongside him, and I said, don't do it, Adam. Honestly, I've, I've done that. Just don't do it. They're not impressed. They feel horrendous if you do that, so just don't. <laughs> Keep rest time for rest. Thirdly, balance. Deep Sabbath rest should contain three things. Three things, according to Tim Keller, a preacher in America. <laughs> um, recreation, contemplation, and inactivity. We need to keep a balance between those things. Recreation, so that's doing things that you enjoy but are not work. So go, go fishing, unless you're a fisherman. <laughs> contemplation, so that's going to church, worship, having a quiet time. Contemplation is regularly plugging into the big picture. Telling the story of ourselves, the big story, the higher story of ourselves back to ourselves. And finally, inactivity. So that's sleep, slowing down, taking time to just be, think the thoughts, process your feelings. But these external disciplines will only flourish if they spring forth from a transformed soul, a soul in communion with the personification of Sabbath rest himself, Jesus Christ. A soul rooted in something beyond mere economic productivity. A soul secure as a child of God, at rest in the knowledge of Jesus' restlessness and labor on their behalf upon the cross. A soul looking joyously to the eighth day, Sabbath of Sabbaths, in the new heavens and new earth. Let's pray.